Part First of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad The Silver of the Mine Chapter 4 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part First The Silver of the Mine Chapter 4 All the morning Nostromo had kept his eye from afar on the Casa Fiola, even in the thick of the hottest scrimmage near the custom house. If I see smoke rising over there, he thought to himself, they are lost. Directly the mob had broken, he pressed with a small band of Italian workmen in that direction, which, indeed, was the shortest line towards the town. That part of the rabble he was pursuing seemed to think of making a stand under the house. A volley fired by his followers from behind an aloe hedge made the rascals fly. In a gap chopped out for the rails of the harbour branch line, Nostromo appeared, mounted on his silver-grey mare. He shouted, sent after them one shot from his revolver, and galloped up to the café window. He had an idea that old Giorgio would choose that part of the house for a refuge. His voice had penetrated to them, sounding breathlessly hurried, Hola, Vecchio! Old Vecchio! Is it all well with you in there? You see murmured old Viola to his wife. Signor Teresa was silent now. Outside, Nostromo laughed. I can hear the padrona is not dead. You have done your best to kill me with fear, cried Signor Teresa. She wanted to say something more, but her voice failed her. Linda raised her eyes to her face for a moment, but old Giorgio shouted apologetically, She is a little upset. Outside, Nostromo shouted back with another laugh. She cannot upset me. Signor Teresa found her voice. It is what I say. You have no heart and you have no conscience, Gian Battista. They heard him wheel his horse away from the shutters. The party he led were babbling excitedly in Italian and Spanish, inciting each other to the pursuit. He put himself at their head, crying, Avanti! He has not stopped very long with us. There is no praise from strangers to be got here, Signor Teresa said tragically. Avanti, yes, that is all he cares for, to be first somewhere, somehow, to be the first with these English. They will be showing him to everybody. This is our Nostromo. She laughed ominously. What a name. What is that? Nostromo. He would take a name that is properly no word from them. Meantime, Giorgio, with tranquil movements, had been unfastening the door. The flood of light fell on Signora Teresa, with her two girls gathered to her side, a picturesque woman in a pose of maternal exaltation. Behind her the wall was dazzlingly white, and the crude colours of the Garibaldi lithograph paled in the sunshine. Old Viola, at the door, moved his arm upwards as if referring all his quick, fleeting thoughts to the picture of his old chief on the wall. Even when he was cooking for the Signori Inglesi, the engineers, he was a famous cook, though the kitchen was a dark place, he was, as it were, under the eye of the great man who had led him in a glorious struggle where, under the walls of Gaeta, Tyranny would have expired forever had it not been for that accursed Piedmontese race of kings and ministers. When sometimes a frying pan caught fire during a delicate operation with some shredded onions, and the old man was seen backing out of the doorway, swearing and coughing violently in an acrid cloud of smoke, the name of Cavour, 
the arch-intriguer sold to kings and tyrants, could be heard involved in imprecations against the China girls, cooking in general, and the brute of a country where he was reduced to live for the love of liberty that traitor had strangled. Then Signor Teresa, all in black, issuing from another door, advanced, portly and anxious, inclining her fine black-browed head, opening her arms and crying in a profound tone, Giorgio, thou passionate man, misericordia divina, in the sun like this he will make himself ill. At her feet the hens made off in all directions with immense strides. If there were any engineers from up the line staying in Salaco, a young English face or two would appear at the billiard room occupying one end of the house. But at the other end, in the café, Louis, the mulatto, took good care not to show himself. The Indian girls, with hair like flowing black manes and dressed only in a shift and short petticoat, stared dully from under the square-cut fringes on their foreheads. The noisy frizzling of fat had stopped, the fumes floated upwards in sunshine, a strong smell of burnt onions hung in the drowsy heat, enveloping the house. And the eye lost itself in a vast, flat expanse of grass to the west, as if the plain between the Sierra overtopping Sulaco and the coast range away there towards Esmeralda had been as big as half the world. Signora Teresa, after an impressive pause, remonstrated, Eh, Giorgio, leave Cavour alone and take care of yourself now we are lost in this country, all alone with the two children, because you cannot live under a king. And while she looked at him, she would sometimes put her hand hastily to her side, with a short twitch of her fine lips, and a knitting of her black straight eyebrows like a flicker of angry pain, or an angry thought on her handsome regular features. It was pain. She suppressed the twinge. It had come to her first a few years after they had left Italy to emigrate to America and settle at last in Sulaco after wandering from town to town, trying shopkeeping in a small way here and there, and once an organised enterprise of fishing in Maldonada, for Giorgio, like the great Garibaldi, had been a sailor in his time. Sometimes she had no patience with pain, For years its gnawing had been part of the landscape embracing the glitter of the harbour under the wooded spurs of the range. And the sunshine itself was heavy and dull, heavy with pain, not like the sunshine of her girlhood in which middle-aged Giorgio had wooed her gravely and passionately on the shores of the Gulf of Spezia. "'You go in at once, Giorgio,' she directed." One will think you do not wish to have any pity on me, with four signori inglesi staying in the house. Va bene, va bene, Giorgio would mutter. He obeyed. The signori inglesi would require their midday meal presently. He had been one of the immortal and invincible band of liberators who had made the mercenaries of tyranny fly like chaff before a hurricane. Un uragano terrible! but that was before he was married and had children, and before tyranny had reared its head again amongst the traitors who had imprisoned Garibaldi, his hero. There were three doors in the front of the house, and each afternoon the Garibaldino could be seen at one or another of them with his big bush of white hair, his arms folded, his legs crossed, leaning back his leonine head against the side and looking up the wooded slopes of the foothills at the snowy dome of Higuerota. 
The front of his house threw off a black, long rectangle of shade, broadening slowly over the soft ox-cart track. Through the gaps, chopped out in the oleander hedges, the Harbour Branch Railway, laid out temporarily on the level of the plain, curved away its shining parallel ribbons on a belt of scorched and withered grass within sixty yards of the end of the house. In the evening, the empty material trains of flat cars circled round the dark green grove of Salaco and ran, undulating slightly with white jets of steam, over the plain towards the Casa Viola, on their way to the railway yards by the harbour. The Italian drivers saluted him from the footplate with raised hand, while the negro brakesmen sat carelessly on the brakes, looking straight forward with the rims of their big hats flapping in the wind. In return, Giorgio would give a slight sideways jerk of the head without unfolding his arms. On this memorable day of the riot, his arms were not folded on his chest. His hand grasped the barrel of the gun grounded on the threshold. He did not look up once at the white dome of Higuerota, whose cool purity seemed to hold itself aloof from a hot earth. His eyes examined the plain curiously. Tall trails of dust subsided here and there. In a speckless sky the sun hung clear and blinding. Knots of men ran headlong, others made a stand, and the irregular rattle of firearms came rippling to his ears in the fiery, still air. Single figures on foot raced desperately. Horsemen galloped towards each other, wheeled round together, separated at speed. Giorgio saw one fall, rider and horse, disappearing as if they had galloped into a chasm, and the movements of the animated scene were like the passages of a violent game played upon the plain by dwarfs mounted and on foot, yelling with tiny throats under the mountain that seemed a colossal embodiment of silence. Never before had Giorgio seen this bit of plain so full of active life. His gaze could not take in all its details at once. He shaded his eyes with his hand, till suddenly the thundering of many hoofs nearby startled him. A troop of horses had broken out of the fenced paddock of the railway company. They came on like a whirlwind and dashed over the line, snorting, kicking, squealing in a compact, piebald, tossing mob of bay, brown, grey backs, eyes staring, necks extended, nostrils red, long tails streaming. As soon as they had leapt upon the road, the thick dust flew upwards from under their hoofs, and within six yards of Giorgio only a brown cloud with vague forms of necks and croppers rolled by, making the soil tremble on its passage. Viola coughed, turning his face away from the dust and shaking his head slightly. There will be some horse-catching to be done before tonight, he muttered. In the square of sunlight falling through the door, Signora Teresa, kneeling before the chair, had bowed her head, heavy with a twisted mass of ebony hair streaked with silver, into the palm of her hands. The black lace shawl she used to drape about her face had dropped to the ground by her side. The two girls had got up, hand in hand, in short skirts, their loose hair falling in disorder. The younger had thrown her arm across her eyes, as if afraid to face the light. Linda, with her hand on the other's shoulder, stared fearlessly. Viola looked at his children. The sun brought out the deep lines on his face, and 
energetic in expression, it had the immobility of a carving. It was impossible to discover what he thought. Bushy grey eyebrows shaded his dark glance. Well, and do you not pray like your mother? Linda pouted, advancing her red lips, which were almost too red, but she had admirable eyes, brown, with a sparkle of gold in the irises, full of intelligence and meaning, and so clear that they seemed to throw a glow upon her thin, colourless face. There were bronze glints in the sombre clusters of her hair, and the eyelashes, long and cold black, made her complexion appear still more pale. Mother is going to offer up a lot of candles in the church. She always does when Nostromo has been away fighting. I shall have some to carry up to the chapel of the Madonna in the cathedral. She said all this quickly, with great assurance, in an animated, penetrating voice. Then, giving her sister's shoulder a slight shake, she added, And she will be made to carry one, too. Why made? inquired Giorgio gravely. Does she not want to? She is timid, said Linda, with a little burst of laughter. People notice her fair hair as she goes along with us. They call out after her. Look at the rubia! Look at the rubia cita! They call out in the streets. She is timid. And you? You are not timid, eh? The father pronounced slowly. She tossed back all her dark hair. Nobody calls out after me. Old Giorgio contemplated his children thoughtfully. There was two years' difference between them. They had been born to him late, years after the boy had died. Had he lived, he who would have been nearly as old as Giampattista, he whom the English called Nostromo, but as to his daughters, the severity of his temper, his advancing age, his absorption in his memories, had prevented his taking much notice of them. He loved his children, but girls belong more to the mother, and much of his affection had been expended in the worship and service of liberty. When quite a youth he had deserted from a ship trading to La Plata to enlist in the navy of Montevideo, then under the command of Garibaldi. Afterwards, in the Italian legion of the Republic, struggling against the encroaching tyranny of Rosas, he had taken part on great plains, on the banks of immense rivers, in the fiercest fighting perhaps the world had ever known, he had lived amongst men who had declaimed about liberty, suffered for liberty, died for liberty, with a desperate exultation and with their eyes turned towards an oppressed Italy. His own enthusiasm had been fed on scenes of carnage, on the examples of lofty devotion, on the din of armed struggle, on the inflamed language of proclamations. He had never parted from the chief of his choice, the fiery apostle of independence, keeping by his side in America and in Italy till after the fatal day of Aspromonte, when the treachery of kings, emperors and ministers had been revealed to the world in the wounding and imprisonment of his hero, a catastrophe that had instilled into him a gloomy doubt of ever being able to understand the ways of divine justice. He did not deny it, however. It required patience, he would say. Though he disliked priests and would not put his foot inside a church for anything, he believed in God. Were not the proclamations against tyrants addressed to the peoples in the name of God and liberty? God for men, religions for women, he muttered sometimes. 
In Sicily, an Englishman who had turned up in Palermo after its evacuation by the army of the king had given him a Bible in Italian, the publication of the British and Foreign Bible Society, bound in a dark leather cover. In periods of political adversity, in the pauses of silence when the revolutionists issued no proclamations, Giorgio earned his living with the first work that came to hand as sailor, as dock labourer on the quays of Genoa, once as a hand on a farm in the hills above Spezia, and in his spare time he studied the thick volume. He carried it with him into battles. Now it was his only reading, and in order not to be deprived of it, the print was small, he had consented to accept the present of a pair of silver-mounted spectacles from Signora Emilia Gould, the wife of the Englishman who managed the silver mine in the mountains three leagues from the town. She was the only Englishwoman in Sulaco. Giorgio Viola had a great consideration for the English. This feeling, born on the battlefields of Uruguay, was forty years old at the very least. Several of them had poured their blood for the cause of freedom in America, and the first he had ever known he remembered by the name of Samuel. He commanded a Negro company under Garibaldi during the famous siege of Montevideo, and died heroically with his Negroes at the fording of the Boyana. He, Giorgio, had reached the rank of Ensign Alferes and cooked for the general. Later in Italy, he, with the rank of lieutenant, rode with the staff and still cooked for the general. He had cooked for him in Lombardy through the whole campaign. On the march to Rome, he had lassoed his beef in the Campania after the American manner. He had been wounded in the defence of the Roman Republic. He was one of the four fugitives who, with the general, carried out of the woods the inanimate body of the general's wife into the farmhouse where she died, exhausted by the hardships of that terrible retreat. He had survived that disastrous time to attend his general in Palermo when Neapolitan shells from the castle crashed upon the town. He had cooked for him on the field of Volturno after fighting all day. And everywhere he had seen Englishmen in the front rank of the army of freedom. He respected their nation because they loved Garibaldi. Their very countesses and princesses had kissed the general's hands in London, it was said. He could well believe it, for the nation was noble, and the man was a saint. It was enough to look once at his face to see the divine force of faith in him and his great pity for all that was poor, suffering and oppressed in this world. The spirit of self-forgetfulness, the simple devotion to a vast humanitarian idea which inspired the thought and stress of that revolutionary time, had left its mark upon Giorgio in a sort of austere contempt for all personal advantage. This man, whom the lowest classes in Sulaco suspected of having a buried hoard in his kitchen, had all his life despised money. The leaders of his youth had lived poor, had died poor. It had been a habit of his mind to disregard tomorrow. It was engendered partly by an existence of excitement, adventure and wild warfare, but mostly it was a matter of principle. It did not resemble the carelessness of a condottier. It was a puritanism of conduct born of stern enthusiasm like the puritanism of religion. This stern devotion to a cause had cast a gloom upon Giorgio's old age. It cast a gloom because the cause seemed lost. 
too many kings and emperors flourished yet in the world which God had meant for the people. He was sad because of his simplicity. Though always ready to help his countrymen and greatly respected by the Italian emigrants wherever he lived, in his exile he called it, he could not conceal from himself that they cared nothing for the wrongs of downtrodden nations. They listened to his tales of war readily, but seemed to ask themselves what he had got out of it after all. There was nothing that they could see. We wanted nothing, we suffered for the love of all humanity, he cried out furiously sometimes, and the powerful voice, the blazing eyes, the shaking of the white mane, the brown sinewy hand pointing upwards as if to call heaven to witness, impressed his hearers. After the old man had broken off abruptly with a jerk of the head and a movement of the arm, meaning clearly, but what's the good of talking to you, they nudged each other. There was in old Giorgio an energy of feeling, a personal quality of conviction, something they called terribilita, an old lion, they used to say of him. Some slight incidents, a chance word, would set him off, talking on the beach to the Italian fisherman of Maldonado, in the little shop he kept afterwards, in Valparaiso, to his countrymen customers. Of an evening, suddenly, in the cafe at one end of the Casa Fiola, the other was reserved for the English engineers, to the select clientele of engine drivers and foremen of the railway shops. With their handsome, bronzed, lean faces, shiny black ringlets, glistening eyes, broad-chested, bearded, sometimes a tiny gold ring in the lobe of the ear, the aristocracy of the railway works listened to him, turning away from their cards or dominoes. Here and there a fair-haired Basque studied his hand, meantime, waiting without protest. No native of Costaguana intruded there. This was the Italian stronghold. Even the Sulaco policemen on a night patrol let their horses pace softly by, bending low in the saddle to glance through the window at the heads in a fog of smoke, and the drone of old Giorgio's declamatory narrative seemed to sink behind them into the plain. Only now and then the assistant of the chief of police, some broad-faced, brown little gentleman with a great deal of Indian in him, would put in an appearance. Leaving his man outside with the horses, he advanced with a confident sly smile and without a word up to the long trestle table. He pointed to one of the bottles on the shelf. Giorgio, thrusting his pipe into his mouth abruptly, served him in person. Nothing would be heard but the slight jingle of the spurs. His glass emptied, he would take a leisurely, scrutinising look all round the room, go out and ride away slowly, circling towards the town. End of part first. The Silver of the Mine. Chapter 4.